Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Orion's Belt, a games industry podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Lance Tallman. And I'm one of your hosts, Connor Ball. And today we're going to be talking about designing engaging board games and looking at Root as an example. Great. So Root is one of my favorite board games of all time, Connor. I agree. We picked it up uh, last year sometime in the fall, and we've been playing a ton of it. It's super fun, super impressive. I love it. And aside from just the pure fun factor of Root, uh, the intricacy of all the design decisions and design choices in the game is something we really wanted to look at. Root, as you're going to see through the throughout the course of this episode, is really, really intricate and very intelligently designed in a way that makes what would be a pretty complex game a lot more simplistic. Would you agree? I would agree, yes. Sweet. So first, we're going to jump to our overview. Uh, what is Root is going to be the first thing we're talking about. We're going to assume for the most part, you've either heard of Root or played it. Um, but it's totally fine if you haven't, if you're just using this as a guide to design your own board games or learn about interesting design choices, we'll be totally fine. We'll speak generally enough so you kind of understand um, the the meaty design stuff of the game. But if you've played Root, that's a bonus because you're going to know exactly what we're talking about. And maybe some of our references will be a little bit more explicit. Um, so the first thing we're going to be doing, as I just said, is giving a broad overview of the game. So everyone has at least some sort of foundational knowledge of how Root works. Then uh, we're going to be talking about our main discussion, which is what are the effective design elements uh, of board games? And we're going to use Root kind of as a, a lens to look at all this stuff for. And so we'll be going over topics such as asymmetry in board games, aesthetic choices, scalability and dynamics of play, teachability, multifaceted victory conditions, map variety and special features, pre-designing expansions, encouraging interaction, and comeback mechanics. Yeah, so I'll go ahead and just get into what is Root. Um, So Root is a strategy board game about conquering the wilderness as uh, an option of different forest folk. Um, And you're basically going to utilize aggression, politics, and the mechanics of your faction um, to gain more points than your opponents. So basically, at the start of the game, everyone who's playing gets to choose uh, a faction. For example, one of these factions is the cats. Uh, Another one is the birds. And basically, each faction has a different way that they play the game. So there's some mechanics within the game that are similar or shared between everybody, such like there's a deck of cards that everyone draws from and they use them. But it's different in that maybe each faction uses these cards differently. Um, and so that's what we'll get into that soon, but that's kind of one of the coolest things about it. But anyways, your faction has a different strategy or a way to get points. And then whoever can get to 30 points first wins the game. Uh, you usually have pieces on the board that are moving around, interacting with other pieces. Uh, you're usually fighting your opponents and basically that's it. That's a very, very uh, high overview of the game. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really great segue into the idea of asymmetry, which is, I would say, probably the um, maybe the biggest selling point of the game. Would you agree? I would agree. Yes. And so before I even talk about asymmetry, I just want to touch on exactly what Connor said. A lot of Root and a lot of the appeal of Root is that every single faction plays the game completely differently. And that's, for the most part, what makes it so appealing, but also what makes it very complex. But as Connor just said, a lot of the fact, well, every faction shares at least a few things that are similar. Um, the biggest one, I think, is the phase system, which is just you have birdsong, daylight, and um, evening. evening. <laughs> that's the last that's one. The one. Um, and that's like your turn order for every single uh, every single turn. You'll go through all the, those three phases. That's not really pertinent um, 
specifically. But what is important about that is the designers of Root use a few share key shared systems to simplify the game overall. If everything was perfectly asymmetrical and totally unique, the game would be a total mess. But there are shared attributes between all these factions that make it a little bit more digestible. Yeah, I would. And just to kind of go over like asymmetry within a game. So we'll, we'll, let's look at chess, for example. In the game of chess, there's two players, two sides. They all, they both have the same pieces and all of those pieces can do the same thing. So obviously there's a lot more when it comes into, I'm sure, designing chess or the you know fairness of chess. But with Root, an example would be, okay, you both have pieces, but your pieces do different things. And so if you're looking at that from a design perspective, that's a lot harder to balance if everyone is allowed to do different things, right? Because what if the one, what if things that one player can do are more powerful than another player? And Root does that, you know, every single player is different. So if you have four players, they're all doing different things. And that's just, it's very, it's really, it's really quite impressive, honestly. Absolutely. And that's probably the reason we chose this game. Um, as we'll get into pretty much right now, uh, you'll see that the game is crazy. Okay, so... As Connor said, there's specific faction boards, and each faction board is basically the player's uh, toolkit, I would say, to playing the game. Reference guide, yeah, exactly. And so as you're playing the game, your board will give you all of your useful and pertinent information. It's laid out in a very specific way, and it lets you play the game as your faction um, depends on it. And so for every single faction, you have a different board layout on your, your faction board. And it's not really pertinent to describe what's going on, but it is important to note that they don't sacrifice uh, simplicity and synchronous um, design decisions for uh, like a, like a unilateral aesthetic choice. And that's just a complex way of saying every board is like the same size and stuff of the sort, but they they take the time to make them look different and format them in certain ways. So even though you're doing different things, there's like a clear user flow through each board that's pretty easy to follow yeah which i think if looking at it you it's it's almost needed i think that if they didn't have these boards that really kind of helped you give an overview of what you're doing on your turn um it would be hard because again everyone's doing different things and so it would be hard to keep track of a what you're doing and this also gives you insight into what other people are doing because obviously that knowledge is important when playing any game what your opponents can do or you know might do absolutely So I'm just going to give a quick overview of all the factions um, to give you an idea of the diversity in this game. So we have the Vagabond, which is uh, a singular piece. It is just one piece on the board, and they have their own custom board. Uh, But as you'll see with every other um, faction in the game, they have a bunch of units they place across the board. The Vagabond is just one unit unto itself. It interacts with the game in a very unique way. Then there's the Eerie Dynasties, which are these birds that Connor was talking about. They're a very aggressive faction that's very like snowball-y and then hit the brakes. Very swingy. Uh, the Underground Duchy, which are a bunch of moles that live underneath Root and spring up out of their mole hive to kind of <laughs> sow chaos. Uh, the Marquide Cat, which Connor also mentioned. This is like the big empire. You know, if you're thinking about Star Wars tropes, this is they control the forest. Um, there's the Woodland Alliance, uh, which are like the rebels. The Lizard Cult, which are the, I don't know, cultists yeah they're just like the religious zealots zealots that don't really show up until they need to and usually all of these kind of tropes contribute direct they map directly to the gameplay 
Um, I'll just finish it out and then we'll talk about them a little bit more in detail. The Corvid Conspiracy. This is like a bunch of, these aren't the eerie. It's a bunch of different birds who are, they're kind of culty, but more like political. I say it's more like, yeah, like a, you could even even say like a terrorist organization. Like the gunpowder plot. Yeah, because they, they do have bombs, right? They have bombs. They do have bombs, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the Riverfolk Trading Company, which is a bunch of otters who like control, or beavers, what are they? I think it's beavers. Yeah, who control the waterways and are like your happy-go-lucky salesmen that are actually trying to swindle you. Oh, it's yeah. It's great. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so as I was saying, the like the narrative comings and like associations with with all of these names directly map to how each faction plays the vagabond is by themselves right there's only one piece and as such its design completely revolves around being your your solo adventure you have a bunch of actual equipment because you're so zoomed in on one piece they're able to kind of flesh out that design and allow a lot more complexity individually than uh, an empire that's much larger like the cats the marquita cat which yeah the marquita cats they have multiple pieces right so you have multiple cats that you place 25 the most 25 the yeah, yeah that you can place around the board and move around and the vagabond has one piece and that's the vagabond so it just kind of goes to show how diverse these these really are because they play completely differently and honestly if you were to play a game as the vagabond or the marquita cat you might make the argument that you feel like you're playing a completely different game Absolutely. And I think that's one of the huge selling points of Root, that the replayability is the replayability by itself. Like if you just played the cat every game is pretty, the Marquita cat every single game, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. I would say like there's a lot of variance in the game, which we'll get to. But if you played the game, there's eight different, eight unique factions and nine factions in total. There's two different Vagabonds you can play. Um, But if you just played the game nine, eight to nine times, just a different faction each time it would be a totally different experience every mm-hmm. single time. And we'll talk when we get to the pros and cons of this design strategy. It's not all, you know, magical Christmas land. There are some True. drawbacks to True. making a game mechanically unique for every single character. But that's that's like the, the overarching thing. So we're talking about asymmetry and the fact that every single faction plays completely differently. And that makes really, really interesting design choices. Um, before we get to our next topic, Connor... I think one thing we need to mention is balance and how all of these factions, although they play very differently, have kind of intrinsically built in counters that you can stop them. Um, so let's talk about the Eerie. Uh, do, do you want to go into detail a little bit about how the Eerie work and how that relates to the really snowbally, but they can be interrupted to stop them? Yeah. So the Eerie are interesting is because they're interesting because they start in one corner of the map and the way that the action economy for this faction is set up is that it just kind of like linearly increases. So every turn you take, you just are able to take even more actions. Um, so obviously, well, that would just be great because as the game goes on longer, <laughs> you can take more and more and more actions. But at, at any point, you can't take an action, right? So let's say you got to a point where, okay, I'm taking six actions this turn, but you can't take one action because for whatever reason, for whatever reason someone's blocking you or there's not enough space, whatever it is, for whatever reason then you like restart you lose some points and then you have to like go back to square one so it's really interesting because if they're not stopped if they're not you know if you kind of just let them do their thing the amount of actions that they're getting on a given turn is ridiculous and they can (laughs) really really you know just go straight ahead but obviously if you're looking at you know what they can do or what they need to be doing with a given action and interrupt it then 
that's it. They restart, and they're not nearly as ahead as they, they, they were. It takes them a long time to build back up. Yeah. And we'll touch on this a little bit more when we get to interaction and how this game really promotes player interaction. Um, but I thought it was pertinent to mention game balance because the first thing people are going to ask is, okay, if I'm a single lone warrior against 25 cats, how the heck do I beat that, right? Yeah. And I think fundamentally the how, how they do it, which is really smart, is they take advantage of the scale. As the cats you're taking, you, like you're literally managing wood supply lines because um, the cats, like I said, they're the empire. And so they have these like sawmills built around the map, stuff like of the sort, and they build wood, whatever. And they control the entire map except this corner that the Eerie start in at the beginning of the game. The Vagabond, on the other hand, starts in a forest by himself, totally alone. And he has, uh, he or she has a lot of access to a, vi- a variety of different like, oh, swords or backpacks and stuff like this that the marquee doesn't even have to think about because they're worried on like the macro play right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so when we get into these factions just talking about balance i I think is really important so do you want to introduce kind of the next big thing to look at connor yeah so the next the next topic and one of the reasons i love the game the most is the aesthetic of root so like we said it's we call it forest folk so basically you know everyone's playing as cats or different animals and then in the forest of root there's foxes and mice and bunnies i think are less supposed to be like the civilian figures um and the art and all the cards like reflects this so there's like really cute pictures of bunnies and foxes and so beautiful it's so beautiful and it's just really pleasant um and so obviously this has nothing to do with how the game plays so you could you know establish a completely different aesthetic for the game and it would still play the exact same that could be some i don't know military space thing or whatever it would sure is. but i personally think that they kind of nailed the aesthetic for this game and i think it makes it more appealing i'm gonna play devil's advocate here and i want it's fine if you don't agree with me we sure. can hash it out i think the aesthetic does affect the gameplay inherently and the reason i think it does okay. is because i think when you're just like a casual player connor and i always talk about how settlers of um Catan or Catan, however you pronounce it, is like the gateway board game. True. Board games, right? And Root, I think, if Root looked like the game Scythe, which we mentioned at this point, we mentioned it like three episodes in a row. We'll get there, I swear. Um, If Root looked, and what that means is like very industrial or like very adult, very mature, Mm -hmm. I think it would have a lot less appeal. Um, Because when you look at Scythe and when you look at Root, or any, Scythe can substitute for any complex game, Twilight Imperium, Gloomhaven, uh, any big game where you're like, whoa, this is going to be Axis and Allies, a big board game. You look at Root and you're like, oh, this game is so like cute. It's, It's very clean and tight if you just look at it. And I think it directly affects how people perceive the complexity of the game. Where I would make the argument, and I think you agree with me at least in this sense, that Root is a harder game to learn than Scythe. I agree. But aesthetically, purely aesthetically, not related to the mechanics, Scythe looks like it's a harder game. This is true. Actually, I do want to bring something up. I was bringing over, I brought over Scythe and Root, because these are kind of like my favorite board games right now. Sure. um, To some friends who don't play that many board games. Currently, again, like their most advanced one is Catan, uh, Settlers of Catan. Um, And I brought it over and I was like, okay, I've got two games here. I think we should play one because they wanted to. They wanted me to bring over, you know, one of my advanced board games, and they said, "Oh, that one looks really fun, and let's play Root." And I was like, "Well, I actually think Scythe would be easier to teach you guys," but they all wanted to play Root because of the aesthetic and the animals and everything. But I do, yeah, I genuinely think that 
Scythe is going to be an easier time to learn than Rogue. Yeah, and so I think, obviously, exactly like you said, mechanically, Root is very separate from its, you know, woodland thing, except for, like, the narrative and diegetic uh, connections it makes. Besides those, fundamentally, Root could be any aesthetic. Mm -hmm. But because it's woodland, I think it makes digesting nine or eight unique factions a little bit easier. I don't know. Maybe that's just a personal preference. I actually, I I think I agree with you. I think, yeah, the simplistic art style and theme makes it easier to you know, wrap your head around all the different mechanics or at least be willing to wrap your head around all the different mechanics. Right. And for faction theming, especially, I think that's really nice. It's really easy to differentiate a faction, not just mechanically, but, oh, these are birds and these are uh, lizards, yeah. <laughs> the lizard cult, right? Uh, so that helps a little bit too. Cool. Well, I'm glad we we could have a conversation about that. Um, anything else you want to talk about in relation to the aesthetic? No, just that it's adorable, and I always <laughs> stare at the cards because they're they're cute. But I think that's all all I wanted to touch on it. So, oh, I guess this is maybe a little bit less related to the inherent game. The only other thing is there are a few expansions for. If we're talking about from a developer perspective, what is your incentive to make your aesthetic nice? Besides the reasons we just talked about, uh, there are a few expansions for Root that are purely cosmetic. All they do is give you like your own tokens for the vagabond, like individualized for each vagabond class. Uh, or they make a few of the game things nicer, like they're wooden instead of cardboard or whatever. Yeah. And I think you sell more copies because your aesthetic's nice, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's kind of tangentially related, but maybe worth mentioning. So sure. that's another desirable component of, of that. Okay, so now we get to scalability and dynamics of play. And this is maybe like the most abstract thing to talk about but it's really really important connor do you want to dive into how root scales uh and then we'll talk about mechanical in a second okay so something that's cool about root is that it can be played with a lot of different players so we have what here one to six players so yes you could play it by yourself Uh, we'll talk about how in a second um but it's nice because at any point i'd say that when you're playing with you know any number it's going to be enjoyable i think with a lot of games you kind of maybe in some cases like want to max out the amount of players to have a good time or to enjoy enjoy the gameplay but i think with with root regardless of how many people you have it's going to be like a fun a fun time i think it also it's important to mention four five and six is like one game and one two and three is a totally different game agreed i would say and well especially one and two but Mm -hmm. continue um no yeah and it's just this is especially relevant because we just went over how they have, there's a bunch of different factions that you can choose from. Um, and so it just makes it, I don't know, a lot of options, right? And a lot of mm-hmm. different things you can choose from um, to play with, you know, more or less people. Yeah. And so to, to facilitate this, to facilitate all of the different combinations of factions you could possibly take, we said there's eight mechanically unique ones, nine if you include the, the second Vagabond, which does make a difference. The game puts in a reference. Uh, I call it the composition, the faction composition guide. I'm sure it has an actual name. Um, but basically what it is, is it's a point system that the game uses to make sure you have an ideal play experience. That's would you kind of put it in the same way. Yeah, yeah. And so what this point system does is it basically mandates that at least, depending on how many players you have, you're playing factions that will give you the board presence and the engagement you need to have a fun game as dictated by the developers. 
it's not a requirement, but it is like heavily suggested that you abide by these composition rules. And what's interesting is if you have six players, which is the max, you there are pretty much no composition constraints. Pretty much, right? Like yeah. you can pretty much play everything, which makes sense because you're using almost every faction. Uh, great. So that makes sense. If you're playing five players, it's pretty much the same. If you're playing four players, this is when it starts to get more dictated, more like rigid. And what happens is you have a character like the Vagabond that we just talked about, who is one piece and a faction like the Cats, which is 25 pieces. If two people play Vagabonds and one person plays the Cats and one person plays like a really tiny faction and you only have four people, you might not have enough stuff going on around the board for every faction to be viable. And let me kind of elaborate on this. So the Vagabonds, they do a lot of their own thing, right? But their success and failure is contingent on the other factions interrupting them. And if they're kind of like left to their own devices because there aren't a lot, enough big factions to kind of stop them, the game can the game experience can kind of be compromised. Do you have like any insights on this, Connor? Yeah, I think it's just because there's the way that they designed different factions is that they kind of assumed or designed it around certain interactions so yeah just like what you were saying with the vagabond the deal with the vagabond is that they're, they're doing their own thing and so if you let them do their own thing for the whole game they're probably going to win yep um so if you you know have certain factions within a game especially when there's two vagabonds you have to worry about um but don't really have the resources or the devices to interrupt them then you're just not going to have a good time because you almost feel like you were trying to interrupt them the whole time but couldn't right or like you do interrupt them the whole time, but you're so hell-bent on interrupting them that you, you can't, can't do your own yeah, thing, you can't right? can't progress your own. Exactly. So that's thing. that's kind of how these composition guides work. And so once you get to three players, uh, it gets even more strenuous because you really need... Basically, it's like three big factions when you have three players because that's how many pieces need to be in the game to have a good experience. And then when you get to two and one, the game fundamentally changes i would say yeah and do you want to explain how i said mechanical earlier which i realized was a very stupid thing to say with no context because but i wasn't talking about mechanics i was talking about an ai faction yeah so in the game was this included in the base game i think the marquee is included in the base the mar the mechanical marquee i don't think it is maybe it's not so anyways in one of their expansions um for root they include what's called the mechanical marquee, so the Marquis de Cat. And basically, it's a faction that operates on its own. So you set it up, you know, you give it the cat pieces, and it has its own player board. Um, but basically, it just says, okay, on when the turn comes to me, do this, 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 and this, and then I'm done. And so basically, it means, you know, like artificial intelligence. Um, right, maybe is, that was the wrong term yeah. to use for a board game. But, <laughs> um, but uh, basically it says that, you know, regardless of what you do or what you want it to do, it's going to make certain decisions. So then you can feel like you're playing against somebody, even though you're not. So this is where you could play by yourself. So you could be a faction and then you could be against the mechanical faction that regardless of what you do or what you want it to do, what you think it should do, it's going to take its own actions. Absolutely. And I think this definitely affects the play experience. Um, we've played with the mechanical marquee once. I think personally, and this is just total personal anecdote, I, I, it wasn't as much fun. And I, I mean, that's how it goes, right? You're not playing against a real person who's thinking a bunch of stuff. But the experience was fundamentally different. I know we had 
one person doing okay, one person doing kind of poorly, and then this mechanical monstrosity who's just like every turn getting points and doing this. And it kind of forces you into a weird co-op where you're forced to team up with your opponents and fight these guys sometimes, and other times you'll be like, haha, I can use the mechanical mm-hmm. marquee to slow my opponents down. It's 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 a de- very di- interesting dynamic and different feel, I would say. Yeah, and I think, I think personally... In my opinion, optimally, you don't have to use the mechanical marquee. I think that the experience is better if it's just um, real players playing the game. Because with the mechanical marquee, it's a lot easier to know what they're going to do, right? Because it's laid out right on that board. Like, you know, okay, if this you know happens to be the situation, then they're going to do this. But obviously with real players, that's not the case. You don't know exactly what they're going to do, what their goals are. Um, but... Besides that, having that option, like maybe you want to have a game with more people, uh, but don't have those people, at being able to have these factions that run on their own are, are really nice to have. Yeah, and if we're so going back to our last episode, which was designing effective communication systems, we had like a six, five or six step um, guideline that okay, check these boxes when you're designing a communication system to make sure it's good, right? Uh, I think now we're pivoting a little bit and it's not as hard and fast, but I do want to kind of review what we've talked about. So if you are designing a board game, you can have more of a, like a clear list of what you should look at. So asymmetry was our first one. You want to have significant difference in how you uh, develop things and look at other things. Um, that was a terrible description. What did I just say? Develop things and look at other things <laughs> and how you... Um, design your factions or your players that way there's some difference and some nuance to everything everyone does uh then we go to aesthetic you want an aesthetic that is really compelling and serves your game well in more than just a ple- like a artistic sense mm-hmm. i think and i think that's where root as we talked about earlier really thrives they're able to leverage the aesthetic to provide a direct gameplay or perceived gameplay change Uh, And then we get to scalability and dynamics of play. So a lot of board games nowadays have one player options. And I would say universally, this is like exactly what you said. Most people aren't really going to play these or it's not the ideal experience, Mm -hmm. but it is a value proposition ad. Like every single time you can be like, oh, there's a solitaire option to play this game. You can tick the price up a little bit, right? Because hypothetically, you can play this game always. You don't need other people to play it. And in the case of Root, even though, as we kind of talked about, it's a fundamentally different experience, they do this pretty well, like as well as they can. I agree. Um, And they're, in addition to the marquee, they actually went a step further and there's an expansion that's the mechanical expansion. And it's basically an entire box set just dedicated to creating these quote unquote AI, uh, like play against the deck factions um, for every single, or not, but a bunch of the factions in the game. Yeah, yeah. Great. I think that's that's pretty much everything for scalability. Anything else you want to touch on? No, I think that's it for that one. Um, the next, this is also one of my favorite things, the next topic that we're going to go over, um, that I think really should just be a standard for all board games is teachability. Um, and what I mean by that is that how does the game teach you how to play the game and how does it let you know, okay, these are the rules, these are what you have to do. Root, obviously is very complex this comes along with the asymmetry of the game um and obviously just with the general mechanics there's a lot of rules it's a pretty 
hefty rule book. Absolutely. Um, but they, the, the resources that they provide you in the box make it a lot easier to really kind of wrap your head around the game. And so basically the book that they have, they have the how to play rule book. And so this is like a more high view the big rule book. Like the, it's kind of, I wrote it as how to play. I just want to clarify. So I don't steer Connor wrong. That it's like the default rule book, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like the default rule book, like this is going to tell you, okay, generally this is what you do on a turn. This is what these people do. This is what these people do. Um, and so that's a nice, you know, that one is not as thick as the other rule book, which I'll get into. Um, and this is nice because it's easy to follow and it can allow you to jump into a game rather quickly. But then in addition to this, they have what's called the law of root. I think it's an awesome title too, considering oh, yeah. the aesthetic, but the law of root uh, or the rules reference. And so this is the thicker, completely comprehensive book of rules. So if you had a question with a certain situation, this book is probably going to address it. It's going to go into depth about every single faction, every single mechanic that you do within the game. Um, and that's really nice because with any board game and especially complex board games, um, rules cannot always be, you know, cut and dry and clear, um, which is hard because obviously it's really fun to play with all these complex mechanics, but rules questions are going to come up all the time. And if you, if a rules question comes up and it's not easy for you to answer, it's going to interrupt your experience and probably make it not nearly as fun. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. And I think being able to have this book is like, look, we made this as comprehensive as possible. So if you do have a rules question, like this book is going to answer it, then that's just going to make your experience way better. So when a question does come up, it's quicker and you're probably going to be able to find the answer. And so that's what I think Root does really, really well. I think this should be done for almost every board game. Um, But anyways, next, another thing that they have within the, within the box is like walking through root. And this is kind of nice. I don't even know if we used this on our first playthrough. Um, uh, to be honest, I think we forgot this book existed that and used it on like our second or third as more of like a reference. Um, but it's a quick play guide essentially. Yeah. So basically it's going to walk you through the first few turns of a game and say, okay, we'll just do this and then do this. And then it'll kind of, it kind of just, you know, gently throws you into the game and it's says like learning on the fly yeah kind of. yeah rather than just saying okay you know have fun hope you hope you do well it kind of leads you in the right direction and this can be really uh easy if you don't really want to read that comprehensive rules reference um and it's that way you can kind of just get your hands wet with the game and kind of get into it and i also think that's really really smart because especially if you kind of you know buy the game go home you know whip it out and you like want to play it right away Instead of having to take a lot of time to learn about the game, you can instead just say, okay, let's just jump into it and see how it goes. Absolutely. I think quick play guides, we're going to start seeing a lot more of them. Um, I work on a board game called Singularity, hopefully coming out next year maybe. Um, and I'm currently writing the quick play guide for it. And it's it's really imperative because Connor, full disclosure, is one of those guys who loves to just sit and look at the rule book I and do. read a 20-page rule book, maybe more. <laughs> And then come back and be like, guys, I know how to play this game from the ground up. <laughs> um, and it's great because I don't have to read the rule book. Connor does. And then he basically teaches me the game. But if Connor's not here, Lance doesn't want to have to sit down and read a 25-page rule book. 
so having a quick quick play guide where I can just start the game, go through the first, I think it's the first four or five turns, and they just tell you literally every single step to take, you can kind of learn on the fly. And even if it's not perfect, which it probably won't be, it's way more accessible and like digestible then. Okay, here we go. Page 16. Combat, whatever. It's great. Here's the thing. It's great. Both ways work awesome. And I think including those accessibility features is really important. Yeah, and I think that it's important to have both, right? Because obviously you need that comprehensive guide if you do include like a quick play. Because when you kind of throw yourself into the game like that, questions are going to come up. And that's okay. That's how it's going to work if you don't, you know, sit down and like comprehensively read the entire rule book. But having it organized in such a way where it's easy to answer those questions is what makes it all work together, I think. Totally. I couldn't agree more. So that are those are like all the the pros. I, there's also tip cards, which are just all the information we talked about on even smaller bite-sized cards. I think Root might even go too far. <laughs> so many of like there are faction overview cards and tip cards there's got to be like over 20 of them i do think a reason for this is because you might want tip cards on what the other people are doing that's what a lot of them are that's what a lot of them are used for um because it's not like once you learn what you're doing you know what everyone's doing right you have to learn what you're doing and what they're doing and what they're doing and so being able to at least have a reference if you don't want to like again sit down and learn exactly what they're doing that's nice to have absolutely and so I completely understand the reason for it. Um, with most games that aren't asymmetrical and or variable asymmetry, they don't need these individualized cards for every single faction. Uh, it does add like a lot of clutter and stuff. But like Connor said, it's also really useful. And we use them a bunch when starting the game. With that said, when I teach people, right, it's, it's a hard line to cross because board games have two phases. You have like the initial people who buy the board game and then have to learn it from the rule book. And then you have the people like the far larger majority who learn the game from their friends who already play the game yeah and i'd say whenever i teach somebody to play root it's more of you just focus on doing what your own thing is and then we'll slowly like acclimate you to what we're doing we'll try to explain what we're doing to some degree and you'll kind of figure it out on the fly because sometimes i do think the overhead of no trying to know what every single person is doing is a little bit much like for you know like it's not necessarily needed um but it's a give and take. I don't know. It's it's definitely an interesting thing. And, th- and that brings us to the, the only con I have listed under um, teachability, which is this exact same vein. The asymmetry of the game makes learning the game hard. Right? Yeah. Because you have to and learn your faction and every other faction. Although at the end of the day, if you do learn all the factions, it's really, really cool and interesting. Yep. And it's impressive that you're able to put all these factions together. A lot of people don't want to necessarily or maybe, you know, maybe people don't want to put that time in. Or, you know, really have to go through that much to learn a game. Totally. And so that's, it's interesting. And that's maybe, you know, a con to asymmetry as well. The more complicated your board game is, although that can lead to more interesting, you know. Play choices. Play choices and just gameplay. How many people are going to want to do that? Right. And so I think, again, oh man, look, it all ties in. Uh, when talking about the aesthetic of Root, the ability for the aesthetic to artificially simplify all of that is really, really cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So now we move on to maybe the most uh, pertinent gameplay design decision we're talking about, which is multifaceted victory conditions. Um, This is really important for board games and for video games. And when, as as a game designer, when you're designing a game, you have to think of the idea of a dominant play strategy emerging, 
which unfortunately happens in a lot of different games. Sometimes it's okay, but usually you're trying to avoid it like the plague. And a dominant play strategy is simply one way to play the game that is fundamentally better than every other way. Uh, or more essential, more like 80% of the time you're always going to try to do this, etc. There are a few games that we play that have dominant play strategies. Um, maybe it's a perceived dominant play strategy because we don't know the game well enough. And so that just seems like the best thing. Or maybe it's just a design decision that it's so inherent to the game, uh, it seems to be core to the experience. Uh, a good example is Northgard. I, I, we talked about Northgard in our real-time strategy, the death of the real-time strategy genre episode. And Northgard is interesting because it is a game which promotes diversity of play, op play decisions. And it has four or five but fundamentally, you always need combat units or some sort of domination strategy or at least sub-strategy to win the game, which is really interesting. And I don't know. I think I talk about this in that episode. I think it affects the core the core gameplay and makes it a little bit harder to enjoy the game because it seems like there's a dominant play strategy. But this is a super long-winded way of saying in Root, they do a really, really good job of mitigating this issue. And it might be because of the asymmetry and because the game's so complex. Yeah, and I think because obviously, and this is just a game design principle, you want to make sure that you, the players have options to take, right? If there's only one thing that they can ever do, then what's the point or what's the you know strategy involved with it? Um, but if you're laying out multiple options and one option is this is the best option, just then why would you not always just take that option? So yeah, just what Lance was saying, you have to make sure that all your options work well, that they're balanced and that they're fair and root really does as well absolutely and so let's just jump into some of the victory conditions that root has so politics which is definitely my favorite victory condition and this is inherent in most multiplayer board games i would say this is always some sort of strategy or sub strategy to win the game in root especially this can and we'll bring up the faction that uses it the most in a second it's it's a very pertinent strategy very essential so Politics basically refers to communicating, making offhand deals, whatever, with people, uh, the other players in the game to leverage some benefit, leverage some short-term benefit. Usually it's like, hey, Connor, if you don't attack me or any of my units this turn, I will do something for you on a later turn, right? Like a yeah. quid pro quo, this mm -hmm. or that type deal. There's one faction in the game called the River Folk, my favorite faction, and I, I get laughed, laughed out of the room every time I play them by my friends um, because they always know what I'm trying to do. And they're the trading company, which we mentioned earlier. And their whole idea is they're trying to use their hand of cards and give it away to other people in exchange for basically like their units. That's their action economy involves me giving you stuff for you to give me stuff. It's inherently politic based. Would you kind of agree with that, oh, Connor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The entire core principle is like you have to use politics to win. And while I personally love this faction, it is a little bit dangerous because, of course, you have a bunch of different players who play board games and some people just don't like to politic. And you basically can't play this faction if you're not willing to really like be a total nuisance the whole game and try to like mooch resources yeah. off somebody. And to add on to that, I think what's interesting with the river folk is that you can kind of just ignore them. If you were playing very competitively um, or kind of in a way where you're trying to shut down other people, if you just didn't really pay attention to them 
or play politics with them, they would just kind of be screwed. Absolutely. Yeah. If you make a communal pact, like, okay, none of us are going to trade with the river folk this game. It's going to be so hard for me to win. It's so easy to shut down this faction, which maybe is a detriment. But I would also say because of how it's designed, it promotes a more casual gameplay experience. Yeah. Right. No competitive player is even going to play the river foe because mm-hmm. you can't exactly like you said, my success is completely dictated by whoever is willing to trade with me. Yeah. There are times where basically it doesn't I don't even have to pitch myself because I have such a good inventory that Connor's going to buy off me even if he doesn't want to do it. But that's rare. That That's like, yeah, one turn out of the whole game. Maybe Connor will buy something regardless of what my prices are at. Um so yeah, suffice to say politics, it's Lance's favorite way to play the game, and it is an absolutely valid strategy for, for all um, factions, but the river folk is like the, the keystone, the cornerstone um, faction. Agreed. Um, another one is domination cards. So like I said before, the main way to win the game is you get 30 points. These points are accumulated through different ways, depending on which faction you are, but that's how you win the game. Now... You can, at some point during the game, I think you have to have earned at least 10 points. Yep. You can instead play a domination card. And what this domination card says is that, okay, for the rest of the game, you can't earn any points and you can't win by getting more points. And instead, you win by controlling certain territory on the map. So the map just contains different clearings is what they're called. And they're basically territories and if you have the most units there, you control them. And that's how everyone moves around the map and interacts with people, builds stuff, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the domination card basically says, okay, let's say you're doing really, really bad on points and you know haven't really been getting up there. You can instead say, all right, I'm just going to get rid of the points system and I'm going to just try and control you know, these three territories, which will let me win the game. Um, which is nice because it gives you an option, especially if you're behind, to be like, all right, I'm going to switch up my strategy and maybe this will be more effective than trying to catch up with points. Absolutely. Domination cards are super high risk, super high reward because right when you play them, basically the the rest, every other player is like, okay, we got to stop Connor. He's, he's going to, he's going for the win. And it's because you can win like in one turn, no yeah. questions asked if nobody does anything. And we'll talk in probably like 10 minutes about how the game encourages interaction this is one of those ways because when connor plays a domination card you have to deal with him because if you don't he wins the game unless he plays it from like a weird position the cool thing is if you're connor you can have this domination card in your hand or like see it on the side of the board and make some play like set yourself up for success right you can start slowly moving people into like the clearings you need to control or the corners if you have the bird domination card um and making sure you're going to be successful in that regard. And even so, it's it's happened. Um, you can still lose in that way. But it's always close. The game immediately goes from 0 to 10. Oh, it's very high stakes. Whenever a domination card. card comes out, it's high stakes immediately. So that's one way to use domination cards. And that's one way domination cards affect the game. But more complexity. Domination cards also have something at the very bottom of them that says... The Vagabond can form use this card to instead form a coalition with another player. So the Vagabond himself cannot play a domination card regularly. It's only one piece, so you can't actually control a clearing because realistically, you're one guy against an army of cats, you're going to lose. <laughs> yeah. So what you can instead do is use domination cards to literally team up with another player for the rest of the game. 
And this is a super, super cool mechanic. We'll talk about it a little bit more later when we talk about the comeback potential that Root provides. But this is really interesting because it does two things. If the Vagabond's behind, it lets if they're in last place, it lets them catch up to the person who's in, in a four-player game. Let's say Vagabond's in fourth. lets them catch up to the person in third place. And then if you're that person in third place, it gives you a chance to get back into the game. It does a lot of really cool stuff. Oh, yeah. And being able to team up with someone in a game where it's usually free-for-all is very, very fun. It's so fun. <laughs> I know that was what we were most excited to try out when we first bought this game because that's it's cool when you're, you get to team up with a buddy and then it's you against everybody else. You know? Absolutely. You get to the gameplay definitely changes. The Vagabond has a bunch of different play styles. It's not worth explaining all of them, but some of their abilities that you're like, oh, you usually do this to like be very selfish and get there's like cool ways that you turn an ability on its head and, and you realize, wow, I can actually use this to help my newfound partner in a way I didn't think I could before. It's really, really cool. Yeah. But so those are just those are just the alternate ways to win the game. Um, but let's say you don't utilize either of those then it comes to point scoring, right? So you have to get 30 points. Whoever gets 30 points wins the game. And so each faction does this differently. But within any given faction, there's usually some decent variety in how you can earn these points. So within each within each faction, they can do different act, take different actions um, to get points. And also... There's like we talked about earlier the card deck, and within these within this deck you can craft certain cards, and that's another way that you can make points. You can also make points by destroying other people's buildings and tokens, which you know gives you some incentive to be aggressive, which we'll talk about in a second. But basically, there's a lot of ways to earn points. So even if you don't take one of these, you know alternate win cons with the domination cards or the coalition you can still use different strategies that will get you points um that'll be different from game to game absolutely um it's it's really interesting because having different point alternatives is really important to the core gameplay experience it lets you without so there's only what five domination cards in the no four four there's four right and so it, without without those, it's important to have point scoring options and alternatives. Um, great. And so the other thing is there's faction scoring objectives. And these are really important because each faction, as we talk, obviously, you've realized at this point, asymmetry is the name of the game. And abilities in regards to asymmetry allows each faction to kind of do its own thing. It's what gives them a lot of their uniqueness. So we talked about the Eerie, the Eerie Dynasties, and how they're really explosive and they get this crazy linear action economy unless they're stopped. Similarly, they gain points in the same way. They basically drop roosts, which are like their home bases on the ground. And the more they place, the more points they get at the end of their turn. Now, another faction like the Underground Duchy, which were those moles I talked about at the beginning of the game, they try to appoint ministers to like rule their areas and they score points in a much harder way Um with just their faction specific uh, manner than the eerie. And so to balance this, the game designers do a, some really cool stuff. And when you're talking about game design, I always say, look at root. This is so pivotal to creating a good game and kind of considering everything. So the duchy can do something that the eerie can't, which is craft. They have a really, really high crafting potential. And so do the eerie, but the eerie di uh, directly nerf themselves. The game designers nerf the eerie in that they can only craft 
items in the game uh, for like a reduced value because they can do it so well. Where the duchy has about the same crafting potential as the Eerie, but they can craft for their full effect. And that's because it's really hard for them intrinsically for their faction to score points. So they use crafting. Like they get a little bit more in that regard. Mm -hmm. Do you want to speak to any of the other differences in that regard, Connor? Yeah, I mean, I just think that having those unique op- options between each faction leads to i mean i don't know exactly how to how to put it but it's just having having different ways to earn points i think this really leads into the into a topic we get into soon about interaction because everyone's doing different things and scoring points in different ways and so being able to I don't know, just analyze exactly what everyone else is doing and doing it in different ways. Just it makes it it makes it easier and more fun to take different strategies and earn points in different ways. Absolutely. And so now Oh Connor, yeah, you interesting. Oh yeah. And then the next topic, and the next one we'll go over, um, is some variety that they add with the maps and special features. So like I said in earlier, you play on one map and this map is the same every single game. So the variety obviously comes from, you know, the actions you take, the factions that you play, the players you're playing with. But in addition to all this, the developers of Root said, okay, let's take it another step further. And within some of the expansions, they added more maps. And these maps are more variable and that the layout changes. Um, And there's also on some of these maps kind of like special points of interest points of interest yeah um so for example i'll just bring i'll bring up an example one of the maps is like a mountain map and so you know it has the clearings in the past each clearing like the other maps do but at the very center of the map there's a clearing that if you control it at the end of your turn you get a point and so that really leads to a completely different experience when you're playing on that map. That means, okay, everyone's going to try and take control of this area. So it's going to lead to a lot more like people fighting, people really focusing on making a lot more units. Um, And it's cool that you can do that in a pretty simple way, right? It's just a simple, okay, if you control this spot, you get a point, but adding that, or at least adding the option to do that with a given, with a different map adds even more variety to this game that already has a ton of variety. Yeah, it completely changes your your play mentality, uh, even if you're not the one going for it, because you know somebody else will be. Uh, on There's another map which adds a lake. Uh, it's a big lake. That's like 30, 40% of the map. And there's a raft you can take to go across the lake. And so for me, as the river folk player of the group, it's, it's really infuriating because usually rivers are my domain as the river folk. I can charge people to pay me. They have to pay me stuff to take my rivers and get places on the map. Uh, but on with if they have access to this raft, they can kind of cross the river uh, at their own volition, assuming they're in the right place at the right time. So for me as the river folk, maybe I'm not trying to scold people who take the boat, but I'm trying to take it for myself. Not because I want to use it, but because I want to make sure they can't. So say I'm setting up across these areas like, oh, pay my riverboat fees. And then you see a bunch of beavers riding their own raft across the map to make sure no one else can so it's it's interesting how these maps really map to uh interesting strategies and they fundamentally change the dynamic at least to a point of the game agreed and i honestly don't even know if the game needed it i think that yeah given what we've talked about 
that the variety in Root is really, really done well. And the fact oh, that yeah. they also said, hey, let's throw in these maps that add even more. I just I have to applaud them for that at this at this point. Absolutely. And I wanna I really wanna even emphasize what Connor mentioned about how in every map except the the base map, you can all the clearings are randomly chosen, the clearing types. That adds a whole other dimension of play. Like it is crazy how much complexity is in this game. Um and it's really pivotal to making it such a unique and engaging experience, and so the game doesn't feel like tired over time. Exactly. And b- with this said, I do think we should talk about the expansions because two of these maps, the map, the lake map and the mountain map that we just discussed, came from expansions. Yep. And expansions, I think, are always an interesting... Beast. I've always thought them been an interesting beast to, in terms of board games specifically. Mm-hmm. And what Root does is that they pre-designed the expansions before the game came out. So obviously... This is going to go into, you know, more of like, okay, well, what's the monetary, you know, the benefits? Of yeah, the game, monetization yeah. of your game. Because obviously they could have just released everything all at once. But regardless, with that kind of aside, being a design they designed the expansions to work with the game before even releasing the game. That being like with that said, if you were to look, if you look in the rules reference that's provided in the base game, it contains the rules for every single expansion right so you know they designed them ahead of time. yeah so you know that when they designed the game before they released the game they also designed the expansions and in a way it's kind of brilliant too because ha- not even having the expansions or knowing what the expansions exactly are you kind of get a feel in the base game you can look at the rule book for those factions and you get like i don't know like 60 percent. you have like wait a minute these guys have all these interesting rules about mm-hmm. an underground like layer for the duchy these guys sound cool. It's almost like a marketing strategy oh, yeah, in and it of is. itself, putting them in the rule book. Mm-hmm. And but regardless, I think that it's better to do it this way because now these expansions are going to be better integrated within the game. Because if you come out with a game and then later design an expansion, it can sometimes not nearly or not go as smoothly or really not add as much as you're wanting it to add because if you do it, if you design it in tandem with the base game, it's obviously going to work better um, in, in comparison to just adding something onto the base game. So this, I think, makes it that these expansions that they add, the factions that it adds, the maps that it adds, are just a lot better for the game. And I think that's a smart thing to do. That I know right? people could make the argument like, well, why aren't you just releasing all of the content with the base game? Like day um, one DLC, yeah, similar yeah, argument. Right. Um, like how come I'm not just getting everything? And that's kind of, again, that's more of the argument of how you monetize uh, your game. So with that aside, I think if you're going to do that regardless, this is the way to do it. Right. I mean, we're talking about design for the game anyways. And from a design perspective, it makes perfect sense because designing them ahead of time from a design standpoint, you're going to be better integrated with the rules every single time. You're just the cohesions there. Right. And also, from, from that monetization standpoint, you literally have to manufacture less, right? If a game board is already set up to include these factions, like in the case of Scythe, you don't have to spend more money to manufacture that. Um, great. And so how those work in tandem with everything kind of correlates to our next topic. Uh, and this topic is encouraging interaction. And it's 
motivated, I would say, by literally everything we've talked about today. Yeah, I think that everything we've gone over, especially the uh, like the victory conditions and the asymmetry, really promotes interacting with your opponents. And I personally think that a game is better if you have interaction with your opponents and the interaction is like productive and not destructive to the game pretty much always right like if you want to play a game by yourself there are options to do it but if you're gonna be playing with other people you might as well interact with them yeah because otherwise what's the point of them being there if you're not going to be you know interacting with them trying to make sure that they don't win trying to get the upper hand or whatever it is absolutely so there's a few ways okay Everything we've talked about, as I said, in part contributes to interaction. We're going to go into a few more ways, just very specifically, that interaction is motivated. So we talked about how people can build things in the game. It doesn't really matter how they do that, but they can. And usually you need a space to build that on. It's like a white square that exists in every clearing. And there's anywhere from one to three of them. There might even be four in one of the expansion maps. Like, uh, maybe there might be. Maybe Just one. I, I don't know. Maybe not. That might not be true. Uh, but one to three, one maybe to four. And so what this is, is these are slots to build buildings on. And for almost every faction in the game, some factions don't really need a lot of buildings, um, but most factions in the game need buildings to progress. Uh, the Marquis is the easiest example. They're the Empire, right? And they their economy is based off all of these buildings they're building and uh, or constructing for that matter. And if you are able to prevent them from building buildings and <laughs> from, from constructing buildings... Uh, you can slow them down significantly. And the interesting thing is, even if you're not able to stop them, the game has pre-built fail-safes to make sure they can't just turtle and win the game. And the reason, and, and the way they do that is by this limited build space. So if I want to build a sawmill as the marquee, I need an empty space to build a sawmill on. Makes sense, right? And so if I already have one there, I have to look elsewhere, probably into territory that I don't control, to build these things or maybe i do control it but it's way more exposed away from my base of operations and so these build spaces are one way that interaction uh, is driven yeah and i think because obviously if you could just build as many as many buildings as you wanted in one clearing then you yeah you well you just said you could turtle but forcing limited amount a limited number of buildings on the map makes it so you have to interact with your opponents and you have to be aggressive and try and take over those spots um and that's kind of again, and I'll go. That goes into my next to the next point actually quite well, is how they reward offensive play. So let's say that you do you are looking for more building spots, and there's a clearing next to you that has an opponent's building on it. If you go into that clearing and kill that building with your units, you get a point just for removing that building. So even if you had no plans to build or couldn't build or didn't build that turn, you still would have gotten points because you destroyed their building. And this includes for tokens as well that most um, factions place. So basically this is the game saying, hey, if you go and you mess with other people's stuff, you're going to get points and you're going to get ahead. They incentivize it, right? Yeah, yeah. They incentivize saying, yeah, if you can you know, go and mess with your opponents, you're probably going to be in a better spot than if you didn't. Um, and so this also is what really allows politics to shine too. Yep. Because obviously, if you're like if you're playing like from an optimal perspective, trying to get the most points, you almost always want to be killing your opponent's stuff, right? That's giving you more places to build and giving you more points and making them do you know 
not be as good. But obviously, we're not robots, right. so we can talk with our opponents and say, like, hey, like this looks like really good for me if I just came in and killed your stuff. What can you do for me if I don't? Right. right? And so that was just a little side note back to the, the politics of the game. But I think this is a really smart way to incite offensive play and interaction. Absolutely. It's um, it's something you all, we, we hear about in a bunch of different facets of life, even outside of games. If you provide an incentive for somebody not to do something, it's far more likely they won't do it. If you do the reverse and provide an incentive for them to do something, they'll do it. It's positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. And like you said, politics factors into this immensely. And it also factors into game balance because a lot of the factions in the game perform better if left to their own devices or can be even left to their own devices a little bit um the vagabond being kind of the principal one but because you the game incentivizes you to disrupt your opponents in like tangible ways like you will benefit directly not it's it's like a you win more they lose more rather than just a they lose more uh because of that it balances a few of the classes that can really get ahead if left undisrupted and so if you even mess with the Vagabond just a little bit, like you fight him once in the whole game, that probably sets him back enough so he can't just snowball and win the game, right? And I think that's really, really important, very perceptive by the developers to be able to, to see this and encourage um, enc- encourage combat in a way that's not just like, oh, I should fight you because like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. You know? And along that, every faction probably has some sort of system in play that just like, I mean, because you have the base the base system in terms of if I'm destroying your stuff, I'm getting points. But there's also a lot of incentives within each faction that are going to be beneficial if you go either beneficial or kind of like, oh, I kind of have to, you know, go in and mess with your stuff and, you know, interact with you. And a great example of this is the Eerie, which are the birds. Um, and they were the ones that I talked about earlier that have, you know, a uh, few actions at the beginning and then they just gain more and more actions um, until they can't take a certain action. So an example of this is they have a build action, right? They can build their roosts and that gets them more points. But so that means if you built a roost last turn, you're going to have to build another roost on the following turn. Probably in a different clearing because there's different not enough clearing. space. Yeah. And then on the following turn, you have to do it again, right? Because you obviously want to keep all these actions as for as long as you can to get the maximum benefit from them. So that means you're like, hey, I kind of have to go in and try and kill you and try and get this spot open so I can maximize my points. And other factions do this in different ways too, but integrating that kind of makes it so you have to interact. And I think... Because I think interaction is obviously very, very productive for a game and it's going to make it more enjoyable. Um, but making it kind of like, okay, you're going to have to interact. Not that you mean, you obviously don't have to, but more incentives to interact is going to make it so there are fewer times where there is no interaction and the game just doesn't feel that fun. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just smart, a smart design philosophy. I think. Yeah. To give players just a nudge in the right direction of interact with your opponents. So then we move to our last topic, which is combat, comeback mechanics. Um, and this is really important, and we're seeing a pretty massive revolution, even in the games industry, to encourage this. Uh, sorry, in the video game industry, as well as the board game industry, to encourage this. Because I'd say maybe five or six years ago, we really saw an emergence of games that were like permadeath or 
I don't know, uh, round locked, whatever. Basically, if you perform poorly by whatever metric, you are out until the next game or the next round, whatever. Uh, and in the, like the last two or three years, we've seen like starting 2018, we're seeing a lot more initiatives to make it so if you die, even in a game where it doesn't really make sense, if you die, you can somehow get back into the game if you do like a loser's bracket almost well enough. Uh, if you think about Warzone, that's like a battle royale. You die, you can fight in a gulag, and if you win that, you can get back into the match. Uh, battle royales use this a lot because the the round-specific um, nature of it is really... It's not conducive to keeping players engaged because once they die, they're like, well, I can't come back. There's no reason for me to watch this, right? Yeah. Episode one of this podcast, we talk about Valorant. Totally different game. It's a first-person shooter. There's a character who Connor talked about named Sage who can revive you once you're dead in a game where it's permadeath. Like if you die, you can't play till the next round. And so in Root, they're like, how do we incorporate comeback mechanics? And we talked about this, uh, the primary way at least, from the Vagabond uh, perspective, being the coalition system, being able to team up with the losing player um, that's not yourself. Whoever's in last place that's not the Vagabond, the Vagabond can ally with to bring themselves up or bring that player up to try to win the game. Yeah, and I think I think this is harder to do in board games. Definitely. As well, because it's not nearly as dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, or as automated. Vi- automated as video games can be. Um, but yeah, we can kind of make, we basically touch on this with the, the multiple victory conditions, because um, this can also be said with the domination cards. Absolutely. That if you're really behind on points and there's some player ahead who's just doing everything they can, to get enough points to win if you play a domination card now they kind of have to deal with you they have to stop right they have to they have to stop just grinding up all those points and be like hey if i because if i just ignore you you're gonna win before i do um and so having these mechanics within a game makes it feel less bad when you lose or when you are losing because you're still like okay there's a chance that i could still come back you know and still do something and that obviously is going to make any game better because obviously you can't win all of them. You're going to be losing sometimes, but you at least want to feel decent about it or at least feel like, okay, I'm not doing great, but like maybe I could still end up winning this in the long run. It's that investment. I think there's so many times, if you don't have a comeback system, it's really easy if you're behind to just lose hope and then play suboptimally. We see this all the time in so many games. Um, Somebody's doing poorly and you can just tell. You're looking at them and you know they're just like going through the motions they're not really playing but having the possibility to always come back and maybe even win the game drives player uh, investment and and engagement so they're always like active looking for different avenues of play uh, where they can come back into the game yeah um but i think that's all we really had to say about root i want to just quickly summarize uh before we conclude connor i just want to summarize everything we talked about sure sure um so you're designing a board game and we're looking at Root obviously through the course of this episode to tell you and inform you of a game that does it really, really well. Obviously, Root has problems of its own. Every board, no, nobody's perfect, but this is almost as close to perfect as you're going to get in a board game. This is a really, really well-designed board game. And so we talked about how asymmetry contributes to this. It's really, really amazing that they give you so many different decisions and avenues for kind of like personalized play uh, that separates every player and makes them distinct. Uh, We talk about aesthetic, how the aesthetic directly informs um, your purchasing power, uh, makes the game more applicable, maybe even easier to perceive. 
uh, or easier to play from a perception standpoint because it just looks easier uh, in terms of cleanliness, in terms of gameplay tightness, everything. Uh, then we talk about scalability and dynamics of play, how this not only gives you more avenues for play and more uh, options to play the game, it also increases the value proposition of your game. We talk about teachability, which is maybe one of the most important things from an accessibility standpoint. How do you get across the core ideas of your game to the first wave of people who buy the game and then can teach their friends about it? We talk about, oh my God, there's so many multifaceted victory conditions, how we're making sure there's no dominant play strategy and that there's a lot of interesting choices for player to players to make and there's a lot of agency in that regard. We talk about map variety and special features, how it's really important to maybe uh, add even more complexity and mix up the game in another way via the environment that play takes place in. We talk about how pre-designing expansions is actually really smart. And besides of the controversy that Connor and I talked about where maybe players get a little disenfranchised because um, of the whole notion, oh, well, if this content's already made, why do I have to pay more for it? The design merits almost outweigh that entirely because you're able to make the game cleaner uh, it's able to save you on manufacturing costs, a bunch of benefits. And then encouraging interaction, designing your game from the ground up so that players have to interact with each other in some way or another, giving them incentives and direct uh, ob an ob a direct obligation to fight other people to make the game experience fun. And then comeback mechanics. How do you stay in the game and keep players who would otherwise start pouting and might uh, fade away a direct reason to stay in the game? Yeah, that's... That was, a, that was a great summary. And also to say, not that every game needs to have all of those things. Absolutely. Um, like if a game isn't super, super asymmetric, that doesn't mean it's a bad game. Um, obviously, these are just things that Root does really well that we think really adds to the game itself and makes it a better, just a more be a better and engaging board game. Um, but yeah, I think that's all we have for you guys today. Um, I will, we will be doing another board game episode on Scythe. I promise. We just need to get some more games in. This is true. We're getting there. We, we played yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but I hope you guys enjoyed that one and, um, we'll see you guys next week for another one.